Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas, and I'm here with my colleague, Bruce Mole. We are joined today by Sydney Chafee, who is a ninth grade humanities teacher at the Codman Academy Public Charter School in Boston. Uh, in Dorchester more specifically, but Sydney has gotten more notice for the fact that she was named in May the Massachusetts Teacher of the Year, and then just last month was named one of four finalists to be the National Teacher of the Year. Uh, so we'd like to welcome Sydney, who joins us here today on the podcast. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so the uh, State Teacher of the Year is quite an honor, and now to be just one of four for this national honor uh, must be, uh, must be uh, uh, exciting and, uh, and a thrill, I would think. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's not the sort of thing you expect when you go into teaching. It's not the reason you go into teaching, but it's certainly nice to be able to shine a light on some of the great teaching that's happening in our state and in our country. How do you get recognized as a teacher? I mean, how does this process work? Uh, well, first, uh, I was nominated by my principal, the B.T. Brown, so I've been at my school for 10 years, so we've known each other for a while, um, and he nominated me last year. Then I went through an application process. Um, people came from the state to watch me teach in my classroom, and then there were some interviews um, with sort of progressively more intimidating groups of people, <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, um, I was chosen. But I will say the groups of semifinalists and finalists were all incredibly impressive. Um, wonderful teachers doing really great work, and I feel like any one of us could have been um, chosen for this honor of representing teachers in our state. And I mean, it's it may be hard for you to sort of you know sort of uh, you know uh, boast about your your great skills that obviously they saw and that they're honoring you for, but but how do you view the sort of art or skill of teaching, or what would you say makes for a great teacher? that, uh, you know, must be some of the qualities that we're seeing in, in, in what they observed in your classroom. Yeah, I think, um, I think a passion for what you're teaching is really important. So I teach history and I teach English and um, I teach them together in humanities. And I have a real passion for that kind of interdisciplinary learning. That's what I studied in college. Um, I'm really passionate about learning about history. My family doesn't like to go to museums with me because they say I, I stop and read all of the things and it takes too long. Um, but I get really excited when I'm teaching about these moments in history. And so that passion, if uh, we as teachers feel passionate passionate about what we're teaching, our students are going to catch that, and they're going to be really excited too. And that goes for you know any discipline, any topic. So that's number one. And then the other piece that I think makes for really great teachers and really great schools is just the emphasis on building relationships with students and seeing students as whole people um, with whom we need to form relationships, we need to... Um, build trust in order to be able to get them to take the kinds of risks that they need to take to do really good learning because uh, really good learning is going to come out of taking risks and doing things that are a little bit scary, especially when we're working with teenagers. You know, I work with mostly 14 and 15 year olds, um, getting them to take those kinds of risks and getting them to be uh, out of their comfort zone is a big ask. So the relationship building is where I'm able to push them in that way. I mean, I've talked to other teachers who at times uh, who've emphasized that same uh, point about relationships and said that it almost is, uh, it comes down to building sort of a bond in a way to the point where, uh, maybe this is framing it sort of in a negative way, but this, you get students to the point where they don't want to disappoint you or where, where you know, they, 
there's that close of a connection. I don't know if it's almost a, l- a little parental, or, or is there something to that where, where they're, they don't want to let you down because you've shown such an investment in them and concern? Yeah, I think that there's there's a fine line there. So sometimes um, that might be where it starts, um, that they don't want to let you down, that they feel like you see something in them and maybe they don't believe it, but they know that you're expecting it. But I think what we're always ultimately aiming for is to transcend that and make it not about me at all, but about the child seeing his or her own potential and seeing, oh, I don't want to disappoint myself. I know what I'm capable of. And so I think that there are some you know, mythologies out there about teachers who get children to do great things and it's sort of all about the teacher and the teacher's personality. Um, But I think when we're doing our job really well, when we've really figured it out, we become... um, we become not as necessary. That the kids will do what they're going to do because they know that they can, and they know that that's what they owe to themselves. Uh, so sometimes in ninth grade, it takes us a while to get there, um, and we do, you know, sort of focus on using that relationship in the way that you're talking about. But I think by the end of the year, we really have gotten them to a place where they're doing it for themselves. Did you know you wanted to be a teacher early on, or is that no? Looking back, there are all sorts of clues. Um, <laughs> But I, I had no idea. I wanted to be a writer. Um, I, you know, in fifth grade, I started this magazine. It was made of construction paper, and I would put out an, uh, an issue every month, and I would put it in my classroom. Um, and I went to Sarah Lawrence. I wanted to be a poet, and I studied with um, a really famous poet. And he said to me, I don't know if you're supposed to be a poet. Uh, (laughs) He said, you have some good ideas, but I'm just not sure. And so then I studied uh, fiction writing, and and I was studying women's history the whole time. So I was working with these amazing teachers and learning about women's history, and one of my teachers sort of started to steer me in the direction of looking at schools. Um, And I did an internship at a school where I was just observing, and then I spent a summer teaching rising seventh graders at a program called Summer Bridge in Providence, um, which is now known as Breakthrough. And that's where I really realized that I wanted to teach, and I wanted to teach sort of early um, adolescent, early teenage kids, um, because it's really, really fun, and and I want my job to be fun. <laughs> and I feel like I can make a difference with, with that group of kids. And there aren't always people who want to work with that age of kids. So that's how I landed there. Um, yeah. and, and did you go to your the school where you're at now right away? or? Yeah, so I, I graduated from Sarah Lawrence. And I came to Boston right after that to work for Citizen Schools for two years. Um, and so Citizen Schools is, at that time, it was sort of build as this is an academic out-of-school time program. Um, and so I got a master's at Leslie through Citizen Schools. I did, it was a two-year fellowship. And so I was working with eighth graders who were coming from schools all over the city. Um, and I was teaching writing, and I was teaching a little bit of math, which was strange for me. Um, <laughs> and we were, we were working with them on applying to high schools. One of the schools that we would send our kids to was my school, Codman Academy. And so when my two-year fellowship was up, I went down the street, you know, four or five blocks to Codman, interviewed for a position there. Um, and many of my former citizen school students were at Codman, so it already really felt like home to me. And I've been at Codman ever since. Hmm. So uh, the Codman Academy Charter School in Codman Square in Dorchester has, uh, you know, fairly high... Uh, population of kids from lower income 
uh, families. It's, uh, you know, mainly, I think, black and Hispanic, heavily minority. So in other words, I mean, the population is sort of made up of kids who are often referred to as the kids who are kind of at the, uh, you know, at the bottom end of the achievement gap when we talk about this this big issue in education. How do you how do you view that whole question of the achievement gap and 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 of what it takes to close it, mm-hmm. which is obviously sort of ultimately what you what you're trying to do there at Codman? Yeah, uh, you know the achievement gap and the the opportunity gap. These are huge issues in education um, and in our society. And I think that the way that we are trying to approach education is by giving kids really really rigorous and relevant. Uh, curricula to dig into. And we are having them do project-based learning to try to get their hands dirty with whatever they're learning. So we're going beyond memorization. We're going beyond um, a survey of every single event that's ever happened in the history of the world. And instead, we're focusing really deeply on a few moments and trying to sort of really fire them up about what they're learning and get them really excited. Um, By doing that, we're able to push them to do really hard work and to transcend some of these uh, expectations of who they are, where they come from, or what they can or cannot do. Um, And so to me, doing that kind of work with kids is going to help them build the skills that they need in order to achieve. You know, we also do some explicit test prep because that's a reality for our kids. They need to know how to take these tests. They need to be smart about the tests. Um, But that's not the only thing that we're doing um, because we really want our kids to be in love with learning. We want our kids to be really excited about the things that they're learning. Um, And so for me, that kind of education where it is... um, very engaging for kids is super, super important if we're going to get them where they need to be in terms of their skills. Give me an example of what you just mentioned, like a couple of key events you said you'd go in and get people excited. Just give me one example that you use in class. So right now we're studying South African apartheid. Um, and so we've been doing this for two months, two, three months, that we're just looking at South African apartheid. um, And we're looking at it through this lens of how did South African people and people around the world resist the injustices of South African apartheid? What were the different methods and techniques that they used to try to resist this? Um, And the kids are digging into the big question for this trimester is, which of those forms of resistance was ultimately most effective? Which, of course, there's no objective answer to. And those are the kinds of questions that I love to have my kids think about. there's no right or wrong. Let's look at all of the evidence. Let's debate. Let's dig in. Let's see what, what we think and what we can figure out. Um, and so we're teaching all sorts of ELA skills and all sorts of history skills through this unit, um, but we're going really, really deep on these a few moments in history within apartheid. Hmm. Interesting. And I've read that you're, you're also the coordinator uh, for a uh, program the school does uh, in conjunction with the Huntington Theater. So can you talk a little, I mean, what 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 is sort of what does theater do uh, for kids, or how do you see it as uh, you know an important part of uh, these are now kids starting high school? We think again of a lot of focus on academics, trying to get kids ramped up and ready for college. But but I know uh, for a long time, Codman has really had a strong belief in. In, in what theater does for kids. Absolutely. We have an amazing partnership with the Hunting Theater Company. We are so lucky to have this partnership with them um, because it's one of the most special things that we do. It's one of the things that the kids um, always talk about when we say, well, you know, what's special about Codman or what, what do you remember? Um, in ninth and 10th grade, every single student 
performs on stage in front of an audience twice. So they do a poetry competition, they do a monologue competition, and they put on a play each year. And through that work, we believe that we can help students build literacy skills. So by doing uh, deep studies of the poems, the monologues, the play scripts, we're actually going to help them build those ELA skills. But again, we're going to have them accessing that and engaging with it in a different way. Um, and then they're also building collaboration skills. They're building um, you know, uh, speaking skills. They're building the ability to take critique and take feedback and use it to improve. So the, the things that we do with theater, they don't stand alone. It, it's really woven into what we do as a school. And then once they get into 11th and 12th grade, there are still opportunities for them to work with the Huntington. They can take Saturday classes with the Huntington. They can still participate in the competitions. Um, and as seniors, they all get up on stage and they deliver these senior talks, which is sort of a, a culminating event for them. And you can see in those talks that they're building on all of these skills that they've worked on with the Huntington over the years. So the Huntington partnership is, is really, really special to me. I really, really love the people at the Huntington and the fact that I've gotten to learn from them and the fact that I get to go with my kids every Friday and play theater games and put on these amazing plays is um, definitely a perk. So there was a big deb debate in November <laughs> about charter schools and expanding them. Um, how did you, as someone who works at a charter school and has worked there for quite a while, how did you view that debate? And I, I, it sort of got stretched into, you know, buzzwords back and forth. But I'm curious what you, what you thought. That debate was hard for me because it felt absolutely, like you said, that it, it sort of was distilled down into buzzwords and it was distilled down into rhetoric and it was um, it became this sort of false narrative of charter schools versus traditional public district schools and we are um, opposed to one another and we're doing completely different things and we are enemies. Um, and I felt like the voice of teachers was often missing uh, from the discussion. So for me, I was able to go and visit um, on a single day, a Boston charter school, a uh, parochial school in Roslindale, and a Boston public school. And at each of those schools, the group that I was with, we were looking for, you know, what are we seeing that they're doing in all of these schools? What lessons can we learn from these different schools? What, what's happening in our city that transcends this debate about you know school sector or school type. And I saw amazing work happening in all of those schools and it, it made me want so much more opportunities for teachers and school leaders in these different kinds of schools to be able to connect with one another and be able to talk with one another and share what we're doing. Um, I just this past week started something in my classroom that I saw at the Boston Public School that I visited that day. Um, and so that sort of uh, sharing and collaboration and um, building on the best practices that we're seeing in all of these different kind of schools, I think that's that's the direction that we need to be going in. Um, and so I'm sort of glad that we have the, the ballot question behind us so that now we can move forward in that way, move forward with, okay, where are the places where we can actually work together and we can learn from one another? And I mean, there has been a lot of talk in Boston, in particular. I know there's even uh, sort of a compact that was that was uh, uh, reached back uh, under Mayor Menino that involved the charters and the district and the parochial schools. I don't know if your visits were done in conjunction with that, 
but there's still sort of, I think, interest in, uh, in, in charter schools and the model, and there's been a lot of efforts at reform in, in districts that have in some ways tried to borrow from charter models in terms of more flexibility. And so I just wonder what, what in your experience, I know you haven't had the experience, I guess, of teaching in both a district and a charter that really could allow you to compare directly, but what is it about the charter model that you've found uh, has been, you know, uh, positive, or are there things about it from from your understanding of of the kind of uh, flexibilities you have that that you think are you know are part of at least what makes Codman work as it does? Yeah, so I think the the flexibility that you mentioned is is a huge advantage. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, the, the promise of charters was that they would be a place to innovate and then to share back those best practices and those ideas with the traditional district schools. And this year, as I've been talking to teachers from all different kinds of schools, I'm absolutely seeing that. So I've been talking to um, some teachers in pilot schools and some teachers in Horace Mann charters um, and seeing, oh, actually, here are all of these different things that we're all doing, even though we're supposedly in these, you know, separate sectors that are completely different from one another. So, yeah, we have flexibility in terms of our schedule. We have flexibility in terms of our hiring. Um, we have flexibility. You know, our kids are still taking the same tests and they're still accountable to the same standards, but we have some flexibility in terms of our curricular choices that we want to make. So being able to say, I'm going to spend three months on South African apartheid. I'm going to hit all of these standards when I do that, but I have some some freedom and autonomy in terms of how I choose to approach that within my school. Um, all of those things are really great uh, autonomies that we, that we have. And then I think one thing that I also want to say about charters in Massachusetts is that we also are accountable to the state Department of Education. So that's one reason that I think Massachusetts has some of the strongest charter schools in the country because we we do hold our charters accountable. We do say, the state says, if you want to be a charter, you have to meet pretty rigorous um, you know, guidelines. And if you want to stay a charter, you really have to be doing good work by kids. And you know, um, I think that that's really important. So I think um, you know, nationally, some of the debate about charter schools, um, not every state has the same level of accountability for charters right. that Massachusetts does. And I think that it's really important if charter schools are going to expand and if we're going to talk about charters on a national level, we need to talk about charters being accountable um, to states in, in the same way that they are here. It, it, um, so I'm not an expert at all on this, but it almost at times seems like the charters in Massachusetts, by and large, have done a very good job. And you mentioned flexibility, but you, you, as an outsider, you're sort of always wondering, well, what's their secret sauce? What do they do? And when you say flexibility, does that mean it's not a union environment, so you're flexible to do more things? Or what are you talking, what is that secret sauce that, that is there that leads to this success? Um, I don't know that we can say that there's a secret sauce for all charters in Massachusetts because, you know, it's not as though every single charter school in Massachusetts is doing amazing work or is doing better work than our traditional district schools. There are traditional district schools that are doing incredible work and there are charters doing incredible work. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what kind of school they are. Um, but when we're talking about flexibility, yeah, the charters are... Um, generally not unionized. Um, there is flexibility in terms of hiring, like I said before, which I think in some cases can be good and in some cases um, people question. So the in terms of what you need to 
the, you know, like the certification that you need to have or things like that, that the charters do have more flexibility, which in some cases can can bring people in who are really strong educators who maybe haven't um, completed all of the same um, sort of requirements that, that other folks might have. Um, flexibility in terms of our schedule, as I said before. So our kids go to school from 9 to 5, and then there's Saturday school for a half a day on Saturdays. So that gives us a little bit of flexibility in terms of um, how we want to use our time and the sorts of courses that we're able to offer. We can offer things on Saturdays that are more enrichment opportunities for our kids that we might not be able to offer otherwise. Um, That's a huge difference, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And now... Uh, and that as a teacher, I'm just sort of curious, that, that appeals to you greatly because the perception of the regular district schools is, oh, it's such a problem trying to extend the school day or do anything else. Um, as a teacher, you know, it would seem like, you know, I, do I really want to work that long of a day or whatever? But that's appealing to you. I mean, um, you know, I get to school at 8, and I leave around 5, generally. So to me, that seems like a reasonable um, school day. I do work at night, and I do work on the weekends, and I think that's going to be true of any teacher anywhere. Um, the Saturday classes, I don't teach, so the we bring in other teachers who teach those Saturday classes. So for me, um, yeah, it's a long day. Um, I have planning time built in, but I think... I really think if you talk to teachers at most schools, they feel like their day is long. They have a lot of work. They bring a lot of work home. Um, yeah. It's just sort of a reality of our profession. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask, in terms of the back to the sort of national teacher of the year uh, award, what's you know what's the next step? Or I know there's there's interviews uh, and uh, have those happened yet, or what's the schedule for when we when you'll find out what happened? shrouded in mystery. Um, I'm going to D.C. in March for some interviews, and uh, sometime between then and late April, they will make their decision. And that's pretty much all I know at this point. Um, Next week, I get to go to Dallas and meet with all of the other teachers of the year from all of the 50 states plus Mm -hmm. uh, territories. And I'm very, very excited about that because we've all been talking on Facebook, but we haven't met. Um, Really excited about that. Really excited to meet the other finalists. They're amazing educators from what I've read. Um, Mm -hmm. We also get to meet some of the former teachers of the year, national teachers of the year, and the current national teacher of the year, which I'm really excited about. Um, So, yeah, that's all I know. Um, I'm excited to see what happens. And I think Mm -hmm. at this point, no matter what happens, um, it's an amazing honor. I feel like there's not really a way to lose at this point. Um, Yeah. And now now one thing that might not be such a a charged thing uh, at any time in the past, but I've read now that the ultimate winner goes and meets with the president. Have you contemplated that possibility? How are you uh, thinking about uh, the possibility of your moment there with uh, Donald Trump? Uh, so we all meet the president, all of the state teachers of the year. In late April or early May, we go. Oh, you do? Um, yeah, generally, they they always take um, us. And I'm, again, not really sure what that looks like, but I know that there is some sort of meeting with the president. And um, I have not thought too much. I'm, I'm excited to go to Dallas next week and meet with all of the other state teachers of the year and just sort of get a sense of, of how people are feeling. Um, I know that my students, some of my students have... Uh, a lot of concerns about what's happening right now in the highest levels of our government and um, concerns about what might be coming and what might affect them or affect their families. So uh, I'm interested to see what happens over the next few months. And, you know, uh, it will be certainly interesting to potentially have an audience with the president um, and to be able to 
um, even have a moment to uh, communicate with him any of the things that my students might be thinking. So that is the one thing that I've thought about. You know, if if my students were able to say something to the president, I wonder what they would want to say. Um, and if you had a chance, you might then try to be the conduit to deliver that message you're I mean, saying? You know, it seems like if I'm going to shake the president's hand, maybe I can give him a message from my students. <laughs> we'll see. Um, it's sort of one step at a time right now. So right now, just focused on next week when I get to meet everyone. That's what I'm really excited about. All right, great. Well, we wish you luck and uh, we'll be rooting for you here uh, from Massachusetts. I'm sure everyone here will be. Thank you so much. So, Sydney Chafee, thanks for joining us. This is another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. Uh, for my colleague, Bruce Mole, I'm Michael Jonas. Please listen to us each week. You can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.